0: good morning again And Jesus Christ is our living hope that's good news this morning that's, that's not just a theme uh, that's a tagline for a sermon series that is the truth the reality uh, that runs all through first Peter that we have a hope because of Jesus Christ I don't know what's going on in your life I don't know what you've walked through this week I don't know the pressures the difficulties the hardships the unknowns all those things that might be swirling in your head, swirling in your heart this morning. But for those who are in Jesus Christ, there is hope anchored in what has been done in the past through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But not just that, a hope for what is coming in Christ. And that's good news for us this morning. We need to be reminded of that. And so if you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in First Peter chapter 2, uh, continuing on where we were last week uh, in verses 9 through 12. Uh, and if you have not already jumped into the reading plan with us, you're reading through the passages, we'd encourage you to do that. we love to be in the Word with you. Uh, and I also just want to encourage you too, if, if you've not already jumped into a community, uh, they're happening right now at 9.30 uh, in the outpost. There will be one after this in the outpost as well, or Wednesday night here at 6.30. I would encourage you uh, to make that a rhythm of your week. And in a community, not will you only will be able to get to meet other believers who are part of this church family and, and build relationships or pursue Jesus with them, but it's also a space that's designed to help us grow as disciple-makers. We are called to make disciples, and we want to grow in that pursuit together. So I just want to encourage you, if you've not tried out a community yet, to, to lean in, give it a shot, give it a chance, and see what God might do in you and through you uh, for His glory as a part of this church family. So, uh, without any further ado, let us jump right into 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12, through 12. and as we read this passage, uh, I just want to encourage you, there's, there's a shift that begins to happen at this point in Peter's letter. So, kind of up to this point, a lot of what Peter has been talking about to these churches is he's been speaking to who they are in Jesus, speaking to their identity, and he's going to do that in this passage, but then he begins to pivot from what our identity on Christ is to how we live for Jesus how that identity should shape our normal lives and so we're going to get a little bit in some of the nuts and bolts of the Christian life some this morning but especially in the weeks ahead like how do we live our everyday lives in light of this living hope that we see in Jesus Christ so just think about that as we read through this passage together First uh, Peter 2 verse 9 but you are I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. I'd just love to pray for you again. And would you pray for me and ask and for your brothers and sisters, asking that God would open our eyes to see him. Father, we come and recognize our need for you. We thank you that we have a hope that is alive in Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, help us to see that hope, to understand your word, uh, and to walk in obedience to it. Help me to be helpful, uh, and we pray that you would be glorified through our time of worshiping you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm curious, uh, kids in the room, how many of you, in light of last week, went home and worked on Legos? Anybody do some Lego work this week? Anybody? Okay, a few of you. A few adults. That's awesome. I see some hands there. That's incredible. Well kids, we love that you're here in the gathering. I hope you were inspired a little bit. We were talking about being built up and use kind of the image of blocks and Legos, and uh, that seemed to strike kind of a resonance uh, with our body. I got a lot of comments about that and Lego building. In fact, when I showed up to my office the next day, I had a sign on my door, and I think we have a picture of it. I don't know if you can read it. It says, watch your step, you had it coming. So a little ominous that's there. Uh, but I opened uh, my office door and I had Legos across the floor. It was amazing, like touche. There was a Lego pit waiting for me. Uh, but not only were Legos on my floor, I had some Legos on the desk. And so this was pretty cool. There's actually some little buildings built. I think we have another one that, that was, yeah, a car was built for me. So, you know, not only is it a gift to have Legos, but when they are pre-built, that is an extra special gift. So whoever decided to love on me that way, thank you for doing that. And when you look at this car, I think when I think about like the Legos that I've built, a lot of them look like this. I and mean, we've put some pretty cool sets together. Uh, the kids got an ATST Mandalorian set uh, a couple Christmases ago. That was fun to build. But they kind of look like this. But there are people who build Legos that are just on a completely different scale. And I think we have a picture of one right here. All right. This is uh, an X-Wing class fighter. And this is a real... This is a real thing. Like, this is not like a photoshopped image. There are over 5 million Lego pieces that weigh over one ton in that X-Wing class fighter. That's pretty impressive, right? Like I don't know whatever you thought was the greatest Lego thing you ever built, but it probably compels in comparison to this. And the reason why I show these pictures, one, is just kind of funny this week, but then two, uh, when we think about Legos... There are Lego sets, and then there are Lego sets, right? Like I don't even know how many boxes it would take to get all of that there. But something like this is special because it stands out. It's different. It's distinct. It's set apart. You can't just buy it in a box. This wasn't something that you could just go down to the Walmart and, and, you know, get for Christmas or for a birthday present. This took time. This took planning. This took someone with a lot of passion and ability to build this and put this thing together. And as we come to our text this morning, Peter has been talking about how we are being built up into the image of of Jesus Christ. But now he's going to begin talking about why. Why are we being built up? Why are we being built into the temple of God? Why are we being built into a royal priesthood? What, what is that for? Which leads it to our big truth this morning, which is this. Jesus' followers are set apart. Why is Jesus doing what he's doing? Why is God doing this work in us? Why has God called us out of darkness into his marvelous light to set us apart, to make us distinct? Why? So when people see our lives, when people see you, when people see me, when people see the church, they see Jesus. Your life is supposed to stand out. My life is supposed to stand out. Not for my fame, not for your fame, not for your glory, not for my glory, but for the glory of God. We are set apart. We see this in verse 9. If you have your Bible open, look with me. But you are, and look how he describes God's people, the church. A chosen race. Not just any race. Chosen, set apart. A royal race priesthood, not just any kind of priesthood, royal priesthood, set apart. Not just any kind of nation, a holy nation. And that word holy means worth, weight. it means to be set apart, one that is set apart. A people for his own possession. So not just any people, but a people belonging to God himself. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's people are called to be set apart, to be distinct, to be different. It's the defining mark of what it means to be a child of God. That We're not trying to fit in, even from the very beginning of this book. In verses 1 or 2, Peter calls them elect exiles. He's called them sojourners, strangers, aliens foreigners. Why? Because they stand out. This world isn't their home. They look different. They sound different. They act different. They live differently. And so one of the questions for you and I this morning as we walk through this text is this. Does your life stand out for the glory of God? Does your life look different Do your coworkers, does your family, do your neighbors, do your classmates, do your friends, do they see something different in you? Do they know who you belong to? Do they know who you are? And one of the things that I'm praying for us this morning is that God would change our hearts, our lives, our patterns, the way we live, so that we would be a people set apart who might bring Him glory, bring Him praise. So That leads to a few really important questions that I think this text answers this morning, and I I love this passage of Scripture. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. One of the questions is this. What does it mean for Jesus' followers to be set apart? What does that mean? What does that mean? look like. And thankfully this passage answers that. And so let's just walk through this passage together. I want to give you a few big ideas for what does it mean for us to be set apart. How do we live that way? What does that look like? First big idea is this. We are set apart as the people of God. We are set apart as the people of God. You can see this in verses 9 and 10 that we just read. Our defining our defining attribute is not the way we look it's not where we live it's not how we sound it's not where we go to work our defining attribute is God I don't know how many of you have ever had a conversation like this whenever you meet someone new usually a question happens something like this hey tell me about yourself tell me about yourself and for most of us including me the way we usually answer that question is one of three ways. We go straight to vocation, education, or family, right? Well, this is where I work, this is what I do, or this is where I'm in school, this is what I'm studying, or this is my family, and this is kind of how many kids I have, and this is where they are in seasons of life. We tend to go straight there. But what Peter is calling us to see and calling us to recognize that more than anything else, our defining characteristic as the people of God ...is God. It's Him. We exist for Him. We are to stand out. We are to be set apart for Him. Peter's saying that our defining identity is not what we do... ...but who we belong to. We belong to God. Look at verse 9. It says, but. That's how the verse begins. It's a contrast. So if you look back at verses 7 and 8... ...he's talking about the people who do not believe in Jesus... We talked about this last week that Jesus will either be the foundation of your life or he will be the obstacle to your life. He will either be your cornerstone or he will be your stumbling block. He will be what you build your life on or he will be what stands in the way of what you want most. That's the way that Jesus is and so there's people all across this planet, all across this world, who are living in opposition to Christ. But he says, but there's a contrast, there's something different about us. Well, what is that? And the next two words are, you are. So what he's about to tell us is he's about to tell us about our identity, who we are in Jesus Christ. How many of you here this morning have a birth certificate? Anybody in the room? Okay, only about half of you. That's a little disturbing. Uh, We might need to have some conversations after this. Hopefully, everyone in this room has a birth certificate. And what is a birth certificate? It's a legal document telling the government who you are, where you were born, that you really are a citizen of this country, whatever country you're from. It's an identity-defining document. It tells something about you. And in verse 9... Peter's kind of giving us a spiritual birth certificate. He's reminding us about who we are in Christ Jesus. So I just want us to kind of look at this. In Jesus, we have a new identity. And there's kind of four things that he says about us. I just want to kind of walk through them really quickly and show you what Peter's talking about here that's just so beautiful for us this morning. So in Jesus, we have a new identity. First thing that we have or we see is that we are a chosen race. A chosen race. What does that mean? It means that we have been chosen by God. Set apart. Distinct. What does that mean? It means that if you are a child of God, you are not a child of God by accident. It wasn't random chance. It wasn't just because that you were born into a Christian family or you grew up in the South. No, God in his love has saved you. God in his love has pursued you. God in his love has opened your eyes to see the beauty of the gospel to rescue you. But here's the good news, friends. None of us deserve that. None of us deserve that. Any of you ever uh, play like pickup ball, basketball, football, soccer, whatever, where like teams are chosen, like you have team captains and, you know, selecting that kind of thing. Okay, so a few of you're with me, thank you. I always hated doing that when I was in high school and I would play soccer with my friends because I was terrible at soccer. So inevitably, like when we would go out and you'd have team captains, I was one of the last picks. You don't have to raise your hand if you've ever been the last pick of something, but it doesn't feel good, right? None of us like to be the last pick. We don't like to be chosen last. But the reality is I wasn't very good, that wasn't my forte, I wasn't great at that. So can you imagine if we were playing like two-on-two and there's 20 people uh, to choose from and I'm the worst soccer player and the best soccer player is one of the team captains. Could you imagine in that moment him choosing me to be a part of his team? It would be pretty cool, right? He wouldn't choose me because I deserved it, he wouldn't choose me because I'm the best, he wouldn't choose me because I'm adding anything to him. It would be an act of kindness, mercy, and grace. And I can guarantee you, if our team of two played another team of two, if anyone wins for our team, it's not me. He would carry the team. He would have to be the one who wins the game, because that's not something I'm very good at. And when it says that God chose us, that we are a chosen race, he's quoting from the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 43, 20, And God makes it really clear, not just in the book of Isaiah, but the book of Deuteronomy and other places in scripture that God's people weren't chosen because they were the biggest, because they were the strongest, because they were best, but out of God's mercy and grace. It's good news for us this morning. We're not a child of God by accident or random chance, but because of God's kindness. But it also means that if we are on this planet and we are Jesus followers, if we are Christians this morning, we have a purpose. It's not by random chance that we were born into this moment of history, that you are part of the family that you're part of, that you're at the workplace that you're at, that you live in East Tennessee, that you are a member of this church. That's not randomness. That's God's purpose, God's sovereignty, and that's good news this morning. We have a purpose because we've been chosen by God. We are a chosen race. But not only are we a chosen race, secondly, it says that we are a royal priesthood a royal priesthood. and We talked about this some last week. This comes out of Exodus 19.6. We read this passage last week because he uses the same language there. This is what Exodus 19.6 says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people Israel, a kingdom of priests and holy nations. So when he says royal priesthood, that comes from Exodus and this promise that God made about the children of Israel, that they would be a royal priesthood, that they would be a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? It means that they would be royal, belonging to the king, and they would be priest, meaning that they would go between God and man. Not to uh, bring someone into salvation, Jesus is the only one who can do that. So when we talk about priests, we're not talking about like the Catholic Church where you need to go to a priest to mediate for your sins. That's not what we're talking about. But what we are talking about is that God is using us as his priests to tell others of his grace. To share the good news of the gospel. And this idea of royal priesthood is is really unique. Like if you want to do a fun study on your own in, in kind of your own personal quiet time, I would encourage you to go read about this guy named Melchizedek. You can find his story in Genesis chapter 14. And for any of you young parents out there where you're trying to like find a name that'll stand out, be unique, be different, Melchizedek would be a great option. You know, you can call the kid Kizzy for short or something like that. It, it would just be great. Don't do that to your child. Just, just hold on for a second. We, we don't want to do that. But Melchizedek, and the reason why Melchizedek is important is because Melchizedek is a priest but he's also a king. And in the Old Testament, for God's people, the priest couldn't be a king and the king couldn't be a priest. No one person could fill those two roles together until Jesus came, who's the perfect high priest and who's the king of kings. And now we as his people get to go as a royal priesthood to tell the good news of what God has done to others. We get to have this purpose. We get to have this title that's been given to us. So we are chosen by God. We are royal priests taking the good news out everywhere we go. But third, we are a holy nation. A holy nation. And again, this comes from Exodus 19.6. It says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A people who are set apart. A people who are blameless in God's sight. This is a beautiful reality of our identity in Christ. Through the gospel, God has made us holy positionally but then God is making us holy. Can I just pause for a second? I don't know about you but when I think about being holy, when I look at my heart and I look at my mind and I look at my life, I don't feel very holy. There's a lot of brokenness in me. There's a lot of shame in me. There's a lot of guilt in me. But the beautiful truth of what this passage is telling us that in God's sight, because of Jesus Christ, We have been made holy. And His work of the Holy Spirit in us is to make us holy. That's good news for us this morning, friends. Some of you are weighed down by the burden of your brokenness, the burden of guilt, the burden of sin. There's good news this morning. There's healing for you in Jesus. Run to Him. Turn to Him this morning. For some of you, you are overwhelmed by the bondage that you have to sin. There's things in your life that you just can't seem to break free of this morning. There's freedom in Jesus Christ. There's good news this morning. He makes us holy and He is making us holy. Turn to Him, run to Him, trust in Him, receive His forgiveness and grace this morning. But not only are we a chosen race, not only are we a royal priesthood, not only are we a holy nation, But fourthly, it says we are a people for his own possession. We are his people, set apart, chosen by him. Why? For God. We exist for him. We are not isolated individuals anymore, but we are a part of a family. And that family is meant to be set apart. That family is meant to be distinct. That family is meant to live together on mission for the glory of God. It's a beautiful reality. We are no longer outside of the family of God. Later in verse 10, it says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, you were under God's wrath, but now you have received mercy. That's good news this morning. And God is not just saving individuals, God is saving people for Himself. We get to be a part of a family for the glory of God. And again this comes from Isaiah 43:20 20 through 21 which says this for I give water in the wilderness rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people there's the statement that Peter's pulling from this is a promise the people who I formed for myself people for his own possession. Why has God saved you? Why has God saved me? Why has God brought this church together? For his glory. For his praise. For himself. We exist for him. And that's good news. There's no greater thing to exist for than the one who is the greatest. Than the God of the universe. We were created to lift His name up. So why? Why are Jesus' followers set apart? Why are Jesus' followers chosen and royal and holy and God's people? Why has He done that? Isaiah 43, 21 gives us the answer. The people whom I formed for myself, why? That they might declare my praise. That they might declare my praise. This leads us to our second big idea this morning. We are set apart To live for God's glory. We are set apart. Why? To live for God's glory. Look at your Bible again in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Why has God done all these things for us and in us? that we might praise him, that we might glorify him. You don't exist for yourself. I don't exist myself. We exist for him, for his glory, for his praise. And I want you to notice the way that it talks about this. It says, that you may. It doesn't say because you have to. It says that we may. This isn't something we have to do. This is something we get to do. This is a privilege. This is a grace. This is an opportunity. We get to live for the glory of God. What do we get to do? Proclaim the excellencies, the praises, the worth, the value, the glory. Of who? Of him. Who's him? Jesus. Jesus. So not only in Jesus do we have a new identity, but secondly in Jesus we have a new purpose. A new purpose. What is that? Two things I want to highlight from this passage. First is this. We have the purpose of a lifestyle of worship. We've been called to live a lifestyle of worship. What does that mean? When we praise the excellencies of him, that doesn't just happen on a Sunday morning in a service. We are called to live for the worship and fame of God in all of life. What does that mean? It means worship happens every day and all the time. That's good news this morning. You can fold laundry to the glory of God. Amen? That's good news. You can build Lego sets for the glory of God. You can take the good things that God has given you and you can turn them back into praise. You can turn them back into worship. I can take Christmas lights down in February like I did yesterday for the glory of God. I'm sorry, I'm one of those people, okay, I'll admit it. Being out in the sunshine and the warm weather and enjoying this beautiful Saturday that God's given me, I can praise Him in that moment for His kindness and goodness in my life. That whatever job you have, how great it is or how terrible it is, whatever family you're in, no matter all the, whatever's going on in that family, you can praise God there. You can worship God there. You can bring worth to God there every moment. This is so important. Every moment in a Jesus follower's life is an opportunity for praise and worship. Are you worshiping him? Are you glorifying him? Does abiding worship mark your daily life and my daily life? As you homeschool your kids, as you go to work, as you take your test, as you compete on your team, as you love your brothers and sisters, A lifestyle of praise. We've been set apart for this. And guess what? When people see your joy and people see you praising God and people see you bringing honor to Him in all of life, guess who gets the glory? He does. Why? Because we naturally don't do that. We love to point praise back at us. We are not good at pointing praise to the one who's worthy. And when we point the praise away from us, back to the one who's worthy, constantly in everyday life, we bring glory to God. And so we've been given a new identity. Why? That we might proclaim his praise. We live a lifestyle of worship. But secondly, and this is so important, we are to live a lifestyle of worship through witness through witness, our worship, our praise, our proclaiming the excellencies of him are not supposed to just be to ourselves or in our home. It's meant to be lived out among non-believers. Look look with me down at verse 12. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Who's he writing to? He's writing to Gentile believers. So why would he call this other group Gentiles? Because he's separating them. He's saying, not talking about ethnicity, people who are not believers. Where are we supposed to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light? We are called to do that among the lost. You and I are called to bring the praise of God wherever we go. The context of our praise and our declaration of God's worth is not in a church service, in a community group, in a small group in your home, happens there, but what Peter is telling us is it's meant to be lived out among unbelievers, among the lost. Who are you sharing the gospel with? Who are you discipling? Maybe change the question, who are you burdened for? Are you proclaiming praise of Christ? To them. The excellencies, the glory, the worthiness of who our God and Savior is to them. We are called to worship God among those who do not know him. And even verse 12 ends with, so they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What is the day of visitation? It's when Jesus comes back again. And this is what Peter's saying. He's saying we should live our lives in such a way for the glory of God among those who don't know Jesus so that when they see your good works and when they see your faith and when they see your love and when they see your suffering and persecution and when they see all those things, it compels them to look beyond you to the God who saved you and to hope in them. And it says that people will be saved on the day of visitation because of the way we live. That's why you've been put on this planet. That's why I've been put on this planet to make God look famous because he is to declare his worth and praise, not just among other believers, but among the lost. And so we've been given a new identity. We've been given a new purpose. The third big idea is this. We are set apart for holiness. We are set apart for holiness. So how do we live out our identity? How do we live out our purpose? What does that look like in a fallen, broken, messed up world? We are called to holiness. Look at verse 11 and 12. It says, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. What is that? That's a call to pursue holiness, to fight our sin nature, to fight the cravings that are within us that are set apart and wage war against the spirit. It's a pursuit of holiness. He says in verse 12, keep your conduct honorable so that they may see your good deeds. What is that? That's a pursuit of holiness. That in Christ we are positionally holy before God. He sees us that way because of the holiness of Jesus Christ. But we are called to live in a pursuit of holiness. That God would do something in us as we pursue him that causes us to stand out. So how do we do that? The pursuit of holiness is not optional for a Jesus follower. It's a command. It's an intentional way of thinking and living. It's the defining characteristic of a child of God. We've already read about that in 1 Peter 1, verses 15-16. through We are called to be holy as He is holy. So what does that look like? We're going to be talking about that more in the coming weeks. What does it look like for us to pursue holiness, to live out Christ-likeness? But let me just highlight a few of the things that he says in this text as we conclude this morning. In Jesus, we pursue a holy calling. Let me highlight three ways for us. I want you to think about these as our response to them. First is this. We are called to live with honor among unbelievers. We are called to live with honor among unbelievers. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? Why? so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and can we pause there for just a second? If you highlight, underline, circle in your Bible, notice what it says. And when they speak against you as evildoers. Not if they do, when they do. What does that mean? If you live a life that proclaims the praise of Jesus verbally and publicly, people are gonna think you're evil. They're going to say you're using hate speech. They're going to say that you're unloving, you're not affirming, you're not caring. Because the way of Jesus is in opposition to the way of our culture in this world. So it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And if there is no speaking evil of us, that means we're probably not pursuing holiness to the level that God has called us to. That should convict us, that should challenge us. We are called to live with honor among unbelievers. What does that mean? That doesn't mean just showing Southern hospitality, putting on the smiling face. No, it's so much more than that. It means we are to intentionally and sacrificially go out of our way to show honor and good works to everyone. Let me say that again. We're supposed to go out of our way to show honor and good works to everyone. That includes people who vote differently than we do, think differently than we do, believe differently than we do, and act differently than we do. See, it's one thing to show honor to someone who's like you. It's another thing to show honor to someone who disagrees with you. And what Peter's saying is that we are called to show honor to everyone. We're going to be talking about this more in just a few verses later in the coming weeks. We are to love those who are hard to love, not just distance ourselves from people who are hard to love. In your job, in your school, in your vocation, whatever that might be, be the best at whatever you do, not for your good and glory, but for the good and glory of God the Father. You have to think that Peter's thinking about Matthew 5.16 where he was with Jesus during the Beatitudes and Jesus said this Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. One way we pursue holiness is by showing honor working hard giving our very best around people who are unbelievers loving them well sacrificing for them well, serving them well, doing the best at our job not to move up the ladder but to bring glory to God, lifting other people up even if it means us putting ourselves down. Why? So Jesus might look glorious. If you're in this room and you're a student, high school student, middle school student, college student, wherever you are in that sphere of life, you should be the best student you could possibly be. Not so you can get an A or get into the school or whatever, but for the glory of God. You should be the best coworker. You should be the best boss or manager you should be. You should be the best person you should be, even if you're treated unfairly or unjustly. Why? For the glory of God. He is worthy of that. And by your conduct, People will see that there's something different in you. That's part of the pursuit of holiness. Let me give you a second one. Not only do we live with honor among unbelievers, but second, we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Look at verse 11. Beloved means he loves the people he's talking to. Deep love for these churches. I urge you. That's not... A passive word that's active. I urge you. I'm compelled. I, I care deeply about you. I urge you. As sojourners or exiles, he speaks back to their identity. To do what? Abstain. Remove yourself from the passions of the flesh. Listen to this. Which wage war against your soul. Friends, this verse for me the last couple of weeks has been just messing me up in my quiet time. Lord, there are things in my life that are waging war right now against my soul. Would you help me see what they are? And for a lot of us, I think we are far too passive with our sin. For all of us, there are good things in our lives that we've allowed to become a distraction to the pursuit of God. I'll just get in our business for just a moment. Um, I apologize now. For some of us, we've taken something good like food, and we take a good thing like food that God's given us, and we use it to medicate. We use it to distract ourselves from the pain. We use it to distract ourselves. We run to it instead of running to God. That's why we're called to practice fasting. For some of us, it's media. It's media. You get home after a long day and you just want to veg out. you want know, to distract yourself. You're to know, numb yourself. And so let's turn on Netflix. Let's turn on Sports Center. Let's go to social media, whatever that is. Let's just distract ourselves instead of pursuing God. And we are allowing this thing that in and of itself is not sinful to become something that distracts our souls from the pursuit of God. For some of you, it's pornography. You're looking for a high. You're looking for a feeling outside of God's covenant of marriage. For some of you, it's alcohol. You've taken this thing that God's made and you've allowed it to become the thing that kind of numbs you to life instead of pursuing Jesus through whatever the pain and difficulty and things that are there. And we've allowed all of these things in our busy lives to seep into our world. I don't know what it is for you, but I know there are things that are there for you if you're a Jesus follower. The passions of your flesh that you long to pursue that thing because it makes you feel good, it numbs you, it distracts you. Friends, those things are waging war against your soul. The Apostle Peter out of love for the church, out of love for us says, see these things. Abstain from them. Jesus said, if something causes you to sin, what should you do? Cut it off. Gouge out your eye. Cut off your hand. It's better to go into heaven without a hand than it is to not go into heaven. And for some of us, I think the thing that is keeping us from living for the glory of God in our lives is we've become far too comfortable with our sin some of you this morning, it's just a call to repent, to turn. What's waging war against your soul? What's keeping you from pursuing holiness? So we pursue a holy calling, why, or how? We live with honor among unbelievers, second, abstain from the passions of the flesh, lastly is this, we pursue holiness by remembering the gospel. Remembering the gospel just want to close with this, because this is good news for us this morning. Once you look at verse 10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What's he talking about? Well, he's quoting from the book of Hosea, and in the book of Hosea, Hosea the prophet was called to have a child, and he was called to name this child in reference to what God was doing with his people. Hosea chapter 1 says this, She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. The Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. God's speaking this indictment against the house of Israel. They had turned from God and were chasing false saviors. And friends, that's our story. That's your story. That's my story. We turn from the fountain of living water. We turn from the one true God and we chase false saviors. Things that we put our hope in other than Jesus. But in God's kindness and mercy, there's this promise. And Hosea chapter 2 says this, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice in steadfast love and mercy, looking forward. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know that I am the Lord. I will sow myself for herself in the land. I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people and he shall say, you are my God. Peter is saying in verse 10 that that promise has been fulfilled to you and to me. We had not received mercy and in Christ we have received mercy. We were once not his people. We were isolated individuals chasing our desires. Now we've become a part of the family of God. This is who we are in Jesus. The question for us this morning, brothers and sisters, is are we living in light of that mercy? Are we living in light of the gospel? Would you pray with me this morning? Father, as we come to you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what you've done in us. We thank you for the new identity we have in Christ. We thank you for this purpose you've given us to proclaim your praise. Lord, I pray that you would help us to pursue holiness, that you'd help us to make you known. I pray for my friends this morning that even now you begin opening their eyes to see what are some some of the things that they've grown too far comfortable with in their flesh, their sin, For others this morning, maybe it's a call to trust in you, repent in their sin, to turn to you as Savior. And For all of us this morning as your church, we want to become a people who not only understand your mercy, but proclaim your mercy. Please help us. Please help us. Help us not to be so inward focused that we miss the purpose and reason for why we're here. To make much of you, you are worthy.